Hello, and welcome to the NCEA podcast. Today, we have a special podcast for you. It's a replay of our panel discussion called NCEA 2023 State of Catholic Education. This presentation comes to you from President and CEO Lincoln Snyder of the National Catholic Educational Association with panel guests, Dr. Julie Vogel, John Galvan, and Sister Dale McDonald. This presentation originally occurred at convention in NCEA 2023, Dallas, Irving, Texas. Please listen in as these educational leaders discuss important topics that impact Catholic education. Thank you all for being here. Uh, this is one of our favorite parts of the, the convention is to just do the uh, do, present some information on the state of Catholic, Catholic education. Uh, the format today is we're going to take times uh, presenting in each of our own respective disciplines. And then we're going to open it up to questions and answers. And so um, we, uh, Julie and I will come down into the audience and bring mics your direction. Again, we won't be able to see any raised hands while we're here on the stage. So I think we'll present first and then come down and, uh, and uh, take questions. So like I said, as, as things come up, uh, please hold the question. And we'll come to you. So uh, sister, would you mind passing me the uh, clicker? So there's been a lot of very good news for Catholic education over the past two years in terms of growth. Uh, our schools really did rise to the occasion of responding to COVID. Uh, but by way of framing what we're presenting on, uh, I'm gonna begin identifying some themes that we think are going to be the big areas of growth for our Catholic school network. And you're gonna hear these echoed in the slides from all four of us as we go through the material. Uh, the first area is learning acceleration post pandemic. Uh, Julie is going to talk about this need to accelerate learning. Catholic schools performed the best of any major system in the United States in terms of academic outcomes during the pandemic. And that was due to the dedication of our teachers and the fact that they went to such great lengths to offer in-person presence to our students so they could continue to learn. Teachers matter and teaching matters and our data demonstrated that. That stated, we're not out of the woods ourselves. We, we believe there's a qualitative difference between being the best system and the least bad system. And so we know that even for us in Catholic schools, our students are still not where they need to be. And we as a network must respond to that, making sure that we get our kids to the point as if COVID had never happened academically. Catholic schools serving as a bulwark against disaffiliation. This is another theme that you'll hear echoed from us time and again over the coming years. Uh, as we know, 65 million Americans have ceased participating in organized religion over the last 20 years. And for this generation of students, disaffiliation really isn't the term that we should be using. It's not that these kids exited the faith, it's that they were never there to begin with because their parents quit. And so we know that as we've welcomed a more diverse crowd of learners into our school, and by diverse, I mean we have a larger non-Catholic population than we've ever enjoyed in our Catholic schools, we do have some real opportunities to uh, evangelize as a, as a Catholic network. Uh, but kids are not coming in with the level of observance catechesis formation that we could have expected from past generations. The things we have to do with our community building and our religious instruction is different. And finally, the, the last two items are teaching dialogue and discourse. Uh, you'll hear us echoing these themes as well. The Holy See put out a document uh, talking about Catholic schools as an instrument of teaching discourse and dialogue. And uh, there's uh, research done by uh, Ashley Rogers Berner and others showing that Catholic schools are actually exceptional at teaching discourse and dialogue, despite the fact that we now live in a, in a highly polarized and fragmented society. This is one of the, one of the aspects of the secret sauce of Catholic education and in us building the next generation of servant leaders. It turns out we're really good at this, and it's an important thing for us to emphasize and be self-aware of that that's an area of strength for us. So those are the major themes that we'll be echoing as we present over the coming, uh, the coming months and years. But uh, first, a little bit on the data. So our Catholic schools have grown for the second year in a row. And we're not quite back to where we were pre-pandemic in all grades, though we are in some grades. So we're at just under 1.7 million students in our Catholic schools. This is after over 20 years of decline since uh, approximately the mid to late 1990s through 2019. One really interesting data point in this is the following. Our youngest grades are the ones that have gained the most students. And so we see uh, higher enrollment in our youngest grades than we enjoyed pre-pandemic and uh, grew 32% last school year, another nearly 4% this school year. This is really good news for our network. 
These are students that presumably are going to be with us for as much as 13 years in the K through 12 system. Our schools have done a very good job of retaining these new students as well. One of the big questions for Catholic schools with families coming into the network during the pandemic, because we were open was, will they stay? And they have, we've seen retention rates between 92 and 98% in dioceses nationwide. Uh, by the way, the number one reason they report for staying is they fall in love with the teachers, with the community, they feel their children are loved and served. And so we're seeing far higher uh, retention than might've otherwise been expected. Catholic schools are innovating right now at a great rate. And this is another data point we just want to bring your attention to. Uh, we see more and more schools trying new modes of learning to attract and retain more families. We have 99 schools that have international baccalaureate pro programs, and that's elementary and secondary programs. We have at least 125 schools that are offering dual language immersion instruction. So that means that a child will receive a percentage of their instruction in, in English and then a percentage of the instruction during the day in the, in the native language. So as they complete school bicultural and biliteral. And we have also seen a growth in virtual schools. There are currently seven fully virtual schools nationally that are recognized as Catholic schools by their bishops. And another interesting point, we saw a tremendous decline in the number of international students at our Catholic schools during the pandemic, but there are still over 5,000 students from abroad studying at our Catholic schools today. So these programs have not gone away and in, short, and in many places are showing signs of growth again. Mostly that's in secondary. We've seen a lot of interest in classical and liberal schools. Those are very difficult to define what actually constitutes uh, that category of schools. A lot of the startup schools would fall into that, that brand uh, or charism within the Catholic network, but we don't have firm data on that. Uh, like I said, we've seen a lot of growth, but, um, but uh, we don't have precise numbers. Our schools are educating an increasingly diverse population. So there's good news and bad news of these numbers, and I want to speak to this a little bit as well. First, the percentage of Hispanic slash Latino students, and we use both because depending on the survey and definition, the terms are not interchangeable, but our percentage of Hispanic and or Latino students has risen from 14 to 19.3% over the last decade. So we have seen growing uh, participation by Hispanic and Latino families in Catholic education. But to tell you what the actual challenge is for us, over half of the Catholic school-age children in the United States are Hispanic or Latino, depending on the studies. So we have seen growth, uh, but the Hispanic Latino population remains underrepresented in our Catholic schools by a long shot. Again, half the children in the US of school age who are Catholic are identify as Hispanic or Latino. Non-Catholic enrollment has been one of the biggest areas of growth for us, especially during the during the pandemic, we saw record numbers of non-Catholic families coming to our schools. It's gone from 4.7% in 1972 to over 20% of our students today are non-Catholic. And amongst the Catholic students we do have, we see relatively low numbers reported of weekly mass going Catholics attending our schools. We know that this really should inform our religious instruction. We have more children who are not Catholic or are not mass going observant Catholics in our schools, uh, we know that this calls for a more evangelical approach uh, with many of these families. They represent a significant number. Finally, a last uh, three data points I wanted to share, and this is from a whole host of information, but I thought these are interesting. Number of students reporting uh, themselves as multiracial has gone from 2% to 9% in our schools over the last 20 years. Uh, partly that's because more students are self-identifying as multiracial. Uh, we've seen at least 15% of our students identified as eligible for a free or reduced price lunch. This number is greatly underreported. Not every school that has students who would qualify for a free or reduced price lunch report the numbers as such. And there's numbers of reasons for that that Sister Dale can speak to at length, but underreported, but still significant. And finally, we're now at nearly 7% of our Catholic school students nationally reporting that they have special needs. About one in 60 children born today will be diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And so that's just one example of the new categories of needs that our schools are working to accommodate so they can remain community schools. So in short, the state of Catholic education is strong today. We are up for the second year in a row. We have had access to federal programs and other means of monetary support that have resulted in good budgets, healthy budgets for many of our schools. Uh, there is a strong sense of momentum for Catholic education. 
uh, we do still face some headwinds in the long term. So the dis challenge of disaffiliation affects the entire church. For us as a church ministry, it affects us. Parishes have not seen mass goers return to the pews and tithe at the rates that we saw pre-pandemic. So that will have consequences for our Catholic schools. Uh, and we know that in the long run, in particular, engaging our Hispanic and Latino brothers and sisters in Catholic education is important for our other overall sustainability as a network, given our numbers. Uh, finally, more and more work and discussion is happening around uh, things like school governance and innovation in, in governance and in school choice, which I don't speak to today, but uh, all of these things are resulting in a lot of opportunities for our Catholic schools that uh, do promise a chance for continued growth. So uh, I know that you may have some questions, but before we get to them, I'm going to pass the mic to my colleague, John Galvan, and let him talk a little bit about his section. So thank you very much. Terrific. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for being at NCEA 2023. almost forgot what year it was. Lincoln mentioned something about religious disaffiliation, and just so you have some context, I'm, a, I'm entering my 30th year in Catholic education. My first profession, I was, a, I was an illustrator, I was an artist, uh, was called a seminary, and the process of discernment did precisely what it was intended to do. It led me into Catholic education. I spent 20 years teaching Catholic high school religious studies, uh, also taught art, became an administrator, eight years as superintendent in the Diocese of San Diego until very recently joining the NCA team. And the research around disaffiliation got my attention uh, nearly 20 years ago. Uh, some of the seminal studies that came out during that time, Pew Research, America's Changing Landscape, uh, the joint project between St. Mary's and Georgetown Center for Applied Research and the Apostolate Going, Going, Gone. And you may be familiar with that research, but there's no single reason why people, most especially our children, are walking away from the faith. It's not they don't believe in God, but they're stopping their practice. And what concerns me is that the median age, based on the research for disaffiliation, is 13 years old. I have a 12-year-old daughter uh, and I worry about her falling off that cliff myself, and we're doing everything we can to bring her up in the faith responsibly. So there's context. There's also concerns within the, the pre, mid, and post-pandemic era, right? There was a loss of community, a loss of learning, a loss of social, emotional strength. There was a lot going on. Suicidal ideation increased among our our, our Catholic high school students and high school students across the board. But what's most compelling is a very recent Pew Research study showed that between 1974, no, 1972 and 2020, the number of Christians who self, the number of Americans who self-identified as Christians fell from 90% to 64%. And what Pew projects is that if those trends continue, we Christians will constitute less than half the U.S. population by the year 2070. So what does that have to do with NCEA RISE? Uh, I'll be leading a session tomorrow to unpack what it is. It's essentially NCA's answer to some of those concerns. It is our family of religious and community assessments to really check the health and vitality of our Catholic school and parish communities. For those of you that are most familiar with our really what I consider our flagship assessment, which is the ACRE and its adult correlation, the IFG, the information for growth. We've added a new assessment to our family of assessments, the belonging index. I believe, friends, if ever there was, ever there was a time to measure the health and vitality of our communities, it's now. And we have to test our assumptions about where our members are in this very critical time. So if you're a past user of our assessment, what's new? Um, NCA RISE, in case, just to clear any confusion, is simply a rebranding of that same family of assessments. There's a focus on faith, yes, but also a focus on community. The revised ACRE, uh, with the revision, the 2020 revision of the Directory for Catechesis, the six tasks were rolled up into five. That impacted our reporting categories, thus our revised ACRE. I'm very proud of that. Uh, we added the NCA Belonging Index. The Belonging Index measures students, faculty and staff, and families in grades eight through 12, the degree that they feel they are noticed, named, and known in a community. Again, we have to check the polls, check the temperature of our Catholic school members, and that's a great assessment uh, to do just that. There's a revised website. I do encourage you, visit the NCA website, go to NCA RISE. Uh, this is the landing page here on the left. 
You can demo those assessments. You can check out our FAQs. There's a lot of information in there. And certainly if that is an area of interest to you uh, to meet your own diocesan or site challenges, you can schedule an individual consultation with me. And I'm happy to meet you where you're at uh, to partner in mission and ministry. Uh, we have a new online data dashboard for our past users. As a former high school religious studies chair, we'd get those big black and white PDFs with our ACRE reports. Now there's a new colorful, very user-friendly dashboard to help you disaggregate that data at a glance. It's, it's very impressive. Uh, engaging community support. Something that Lincoln mentioned at the, at the president's dinner last night was, I think one of the greatest values of NCEA, and I've been a longtime member, 30 years strong, is NCEA's ability to convene its members across the country. Uh, I've been coming to NCEA conventions. San Diego, my home diocese, hosted in 2016. Um, and the Catholic Leadership Summit for Superintendents, it is the best place to find your people, to network, so you're not alone. Friends, ministry can be a lonely place at times, and NCA can help you um, cross that bridge. And then the bottom line, what, what do our assessments really provide? I think these are areas that we, we, all, have, uh, we all have a stake in this. Uh, a comprehensive contextual curriculum agnostic assessment uh, if we need to understand how our kids and our adults, what they know and feel about the faith, that's very important. Um, we need better informed and teachers and better informed religious instruction. Uh, I had a conversation just uh, prior to coming in here. It was almost late, in fact, uh, big diocese. And, you know, they've got assessments, but they're not aligned to the catechism, not aligned to the directory for catechesis. And there's questions in there and there's pockets. NCA can help you. Uh, fill those gaps. That is our ministry. Um, engagement with other Catholic educational professionals. An answer to that ever-growing religious disaffiliation is so important. And certainly, uh, data for uh, strategic planning. Our assessments and, and what we do at NCA, it's not just for religion teachers or for catechists and DREs. It's for the health and vitality of the entire school and parish community. And that's important to all of us. I think that's, that's it for me. I just want to say, God bless you. Thank you for your yes to this mission and ministry. And at this point, I'm going to turn it over to my dear friend and colleague, Sister Dale. Thank you. Well, since the early 1990s, NCEA has had a public policy office. I joined it in 1995. And the purpose uh, is to engage in uh, analysis and advocacy um, regarding the educational policy issues that are before generally the federal, um, the, at the federal level before Congress or uh, Department of Education or um, some other agency that's federal. But we do um, assist state level as well sometimes when it would have national implications for, for, other, um, for other schools across the country. And, and basically what we try to do, I work in conjunction with other private school uh, associations, organizations um, under the direction of CAPE. Uh, I work with the Catholic Bishops Conference and um, we try to form a co coherent voice. Uh, I work from the Catholic education perspective, of course, but we try to present a picture of, of private education as partners in the educational enterprise in this country and to um, make the distinction between public and private education and faith-based education and the importance for each sector to be part of the educational operation of this country. And so we work to really um, help shape the public policy. It's much easier to deal with particularly legislation when it's being formed than after it's formed to try to get to change it. So we watch for various things that are coming up in the Congress, and I'll talk about that in a, in a minute or two, uh, and to make sure that it respects the autonomy and independence of our Catholic schools and our bill and our and our religious freedom as well, and our ability to participate. And so we try hard to make sure that if it's appropriate, we are included in any federal education benefits. You know, our, our, your, well, your, tax pay, your tax dollars, as well as the tax dollars of the parents of the children in your schools are what fund these programs. And so, you know, our, our children are entitled to a share of that money as well as the public school children. So that, um, 
when we're looking at the various things, these are some of the things that I'm paying particular attention to right now. And the first is the whole educational choice piece. And um, we, we try to refer to it always as parental choice and education, honoring the rights of parents as the first educators of their children and their right to um, select the best options for their children. And you know, in our public policy statements from NCEA, we talk about the right of the parent to be supported uh, financially if that's a necessity that their child can be educated um, to his or her full potential and in the manner in which the parent wants that to happen. Um, the Educational Choice for Children Act is now before, um, it has introduced in both houses of Congress, almost all Republicans signed on in both houses, but they have um, not been able to secure a bipartisan um, even sponsorship for that. But this would create a national um, income tax credit for contributions to scholarship funds. Right now, 31 states and the District of Columbia have a variety of choice programs, 65 different programs that provide some assistance for parents to educate their children um, outside of the public school system. The um, important piece to this is that in some states, you're never going to get a school choice bill. Uh, just politically, it's, it's not an option in, in many states. And, and hard to say that that will happen uh, in terms of state. The state programs are the ones that um, are in operation now. The only federal education choice program is the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program um, that provides scholarships to uh, low-income families in the District of Columbia to go to school in the District of Columbia. So this tax credit, the Education Choice for Children Act, would provide up to $10 billion a year to be divided among the states and then distributed on a first come first serve basis to those who apply. So it would be um, uh, people who donate to a scholarship granting organization would be able to claim a tax, a federal tax in income tax and credit uh, against their liability. So the, um, option then would be in every state. Um, every state will get a share of the money divided proportionally as a formula in the law. And then um, it would just be used up state by state um, as people apply for it. But you know, it's estimated that more than 2 million students would be able to benefit from that kind of uh, increase in scholarship program funding. So um, it's something to watch for. We'll keep posted. Um, updates on it. Right now, it has not, it's been introduced, but has not been brought to any kind of conversation in committee. So um, it would likely pass the House. The Senate will be a, a large lift, um, but we'll be paying attention and seeing what we can do about that. The other choice initiative we're watching is the Religious Charter School Bill, um, the Religious Charter School application. The um, state of Oklahoma, the diocese is in Oklahoma, have applied to their state uh, virtual charter board for um, being recognized and being granted status as a virtual charter school. Um, the former attorney general in Oklahoma had um, sent a memo out that said, well, in the light of recent support Supreme Court decisions, you can't deny a, a program simply because it's religious. And so um, he felt that a religious charter school was a possibility. And so they organized in Oklahoma City and have submitted a grant for a virtual charter school. The uh, current, uh, that attorney general left, that was on his way out the door, he issued that memo. Um, and the current attorney general says, uh, no, that's an, that's an improper application. And so um, the bill was supposed to be, uh, the application was supposed to be voted upon um, this month, but it has been postponed. And uh, some of what may account for that, we're watching, there's a, a federal case that the, we don't know yet. The U.S. Supreme Court is trying to decide whether it will take the case or not, which involved a charter school in North Carolina that is being sued um, because it is a state actor um, and it has made regulations. It, it would not allow young women to wear um, uh, pants. They had to wear skirts 
and the ACLU um, said that was a violation of their civil rights. So the question is, is a charter school an independent school that has some government funding, or is it a government school that is allowed to act independently? So um, I'm sure that's playing into the Oklahoma decision to postpone a decision about whether or not they'll grant the, the charter. Uh, you know, we have a lot of concerns about, you know, what is a religious charter school and what kind of independence and autonomy would it have to actually, you know, be a Catholic school in, in all that we expect a Catholic school to be. So we'll be watching that. I mean, there are a lot of other concerns, you know, very few religious charter schools would likely be approved in any state simply because there's not funding for it. And then what would that mean for other you know, Catholic schools that now will be competing with a free religious charter school. So we're watching, you know, this, it's not as easy as it looks. And so um, we're looking definitely to see if the court, if the Supreme Court takes the case, uh, what that ruling would be, would be certainly be a, a huge um, decision maker one way or another. And then the other, um, we're looking at the COVID aid relief implementation that there are deadlines approaching for the expenditure of the funding, the EAMS, the emergency assistance to um, non-public schools that had two versions and there's over $10 billion that was allocated in that. And most of it has not been spent. Several machinations have happened that made it impossible for many schools and some states, most schools not to apply. So we're looking at um, working with state leaders. If the money goes back to the governor, um, the rules change and many of the schools who could not apply initially um, would be able likely to apply and be able to get some of that funding. So um, that's, that's on our horizon and we've got timeframes to work within. Um, then the other, the, you know, the equitable services and federal programs, uh, a big program um, initiative that the administration is looking to is early, early child care, um, pre-K, universal pre-K. And um, some of the language we're looking at would make it somewhat impossible for our schools to participate. You know, we who really created the, the pre-K system of schools in this country, I had many fun, you know, well-founded programs way before public schools started pre-K um, to, you know, to be axed out of the market would, would, would simply be um, really detrimental to, well, some of our schools, but most, most, mostly for families. Um, so we're looking at what the language is like in those bills. And then the last thing we're looking at is the religious liberty issues. I know there are some concerns among uh, superintendents and, and bishops about what it means to participate in a federal program and what is that going to um, mean for some of our Catholic identity issues, um, particularly Title IX and 504. Um, the Department of Education um, several months ago, actually last year, um, put out a notice for rulemaking that um, looked at how they would interpret and, and enforce regulations in Title IX about um, gender diversity, uh, sexual orientation, and gender identity now um, being uh, included in the definition of sex. When you can't, initially Title IX was the, the bill that tried to provide equality in sports opportunities, particularly for women in, 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 in sports. Um, it's gotten into several other areas, but um, that ruling from the department, what they are now proposing after hearing from people, they had over 300,000 comments, the most they ever had from the public in terms of what they were proposing in the regulation. Uh, we don't know what that was, but that they were very clear in that in that um, notice of comments that it did not include sports, eligibility for sports. And um, just um, Holy Thursday, you know, as everything is shutting down, they put out now the um, proposed ruling for participation eligibility in sports. So, uh, and you get 30 days to respond to it. So I know what a lot of activity I'll be working on in the next couple of weeks, but um, in both the original 
Title IX as it's always been. There is an exemption for a religious exemption for an organization that um, to comply with being violation of the religious tenants, you are not, you don't have to comply. That was retained in the, the notice that went out for rulemaking. What comes back, we're not sure. And then there's also, I did not read all of what came out on Holy Thursday, um, but there, I did skim it and there is still a religious exemption if, if that endures. So we're really paying attention to that. And then, um, so for, for our schools, that would not really be a big issue for in most instances, um, since we have a religious exemption, but um, if um, your school is involved in an interleague, you know, public school uh, league uh, sports, um, and they do have transgender students on their team, uh, how does that impact if they come to play at your school and so on? And, you know, so we need to be really clear about what that looks like. Um, and then the, um, a couple of weeks ago, the, uh, the attorney general did send to all state a a AGs that um, they now consider gender dysphoria um, can be considered as a disability. So how that's going to play into 504 and um, all of the regulations regarding 504 and how that it might impact our schools um, serving students with disabilities is yet to be seen. So we have more work, we have more attention to pay um, to these kinds of issues um, to make sure you know, that our schools still can participate in what they're entitled to participate without compromising religious freedom, independence, autonomy. So we'll be providing you more information as, as we get it. So thank you. All right, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about academic recovery. And I want to highlight some really cool data slides that I stole from someone else, but I did give her credit because I did not put them together this way, but this is data that we all have access to that we could put together this way if we wanted to. These come from Kathleen um, Porter McGee, who's a superintendent in the partnership schools, and I really like the way she highlighted our Catholic schools. And so I really wanted to bring it to your attention because I think it says something about who we are and about how we respond to things academically over time and in particular during COVID. So what we have here are eighth grade NAEP results up here. And what, we, what she did is she said, okay, if Catholic schools were their own state, how would we compare to all of the other states in the United States? Where would we fall? How would our kids perform? How would they do? So when you look up here, it's eighth grade math on the left, eighth grade reading on the right, we're at the very top. We would be the top performing state in the United States of America if we were considered our own state of the union. And so I think it says a lot about who we are and what we do that our kids are doing so well. A couple things to point out um, on here is they then go by states, Massachusetts. I don't know if any of you are from Massachusetts. They always do really well in education, always have, always kind of leaders and innovators in that state. So they're generally at the top of the list too. But if you go down here, the red line, national public schools, if they were their own state as a nation, that's where they would fall. And if you look down here at some of our competition, charter schools are in yellow. So it gives you a kind of idea as far as academics go, we're not doing too bad, are we? Our eighth graders are looking pretty good. So I kind of like that data. But let's see, wait, did we go back here one more? Did I skip one? No, just eighth grade. So I just wanted to see where we are. But then I would wanna talk a little bit about some longitudinal results. So again, same data from the National Assessment of Education Progress. And you might say, why are you using this data? It doesn't apply to me. Well, it's the only way that we can compare ourselves to public schools because it's the only place we have a big enough random sample of our Catholic schools to make the data reliable and valid. So when you get the question that says, should I participate in these NAEP tests? The answer needs to be yes. So I am going to plug a commercial for something I've never plugged before because if we don't participate, we don't know how we're comparing to our, our um, fellow public schools. So it's really important that we participate in these NAEP assessments. And so this one right here shows us NAEP results for Catholic schools in fourth grade. And if you look at it, it's really simple, really clear. We're the blue line on the top. Public schools are the 
bold line down below, and you can kind of see the difference. We look pretty good, right? We really perform quite high. We should be quite proud of those results. So I'm really happy about those. I wanna show you something. These are my additional lines, straight red lines. Just think about what those look like when you lay those over the top. Let's look at eighth grade math. Trend line, trending a little bit down. We have the dip from 2022 because of COVID. So you see the math dip, that's not new. We're all aware of that. We know about that, not seeing anything new. But if you kind of look from 2013 to 2019, we still outperform our public school counterparts, right? We do, but our results look sort of similar. So pay attention to that again. I'm gonna quickly show you another set. Same concept, these are our fourth grade reading scores. If you add the red to both, yes, we are outperforming our public school folks. And this is our eighth grade reading. Same thing, that one's a little more variant than the others, but the concept to me is still the same. Overall, if you're looking at the trend lines, our trend lines mirror public school trend lines for the most part. They're not that much different and they have the same thing. They're sort of flat. So while we outperform and we mirror our public school counterparts, here's the deal. Our scores aren't slowly rising over time, are they? So there's our caveat. There are two things that are really essential for our kids to grow and to learn. There are two things that I want you to concentrate and there's only two, re there's two reasons I put reading and math up. Reading and math are the two things that kids need to be literate at. No exceptions under any conditions. We have to be able to teach kids how to read and be literate in math better than anybody else, hands down because those are the two ways we sort people. Those are the two ways we decide who's successful and who is not in this country. And these are the two things we are historically known for being better at than anybody else. So we wanna continue that. And I'd really like to see our NAEP scores, not flatline and mirror public schools, but I'd really like to see what we can do to maybe start to slowly growing those over the years, a point here, a point there, and slowly moving that trend line up instead of keeping that trend line flat. To me, that would show that we were really growing. So we've got to build that super strong foundation because if we don't have that strong foundation in our K-8 schools, our kids are gonna suffer. They're gonna hit a point in their life and their career when that foundation isn't gonna hold anymore. And so I only have one personal example to share with you about that because it's really um, kind of pertinent is you know how math, how many of you love math? Yeah, not so many, huh? Okay, so um, I used to love math. I still do, believe it or not. But when I was a kid, I missed all of fifth grade. I was in the hospital. I was out of school. Didn't go to school at all. When I was a kid, guess what they taught in fifth grade math? Fractions, decimals, and percent, right? Those were the three big concepts in fifth grade math. Sixth grade math, no problem. Didn't really affect me. Seventh grade math, started to notice a few gaps, eighth grade math, not so much. Then we hit algebra, bombed, because what is algebra all about? Proportionality, fractions, decimals, and percents. Didn't have a clue. So my foundation crashed, crashed. My parents had to pay for all kinds of extra help for me just to get me caught back up because I had missed the essential skills. So one of the things that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about over the next few years is Focus, pay attention to the very essential things because here's what education does. Education puts out big standards and things that are written in language that is meant to show that kids know a big amount of skills. But if I'm a teacher and I'm in the classroom and I'm teaching third grade, I'm not teaching to a big standard. I wanna know what the skill is my kids need to know tomorrow and how I'm gonna teach it and how I'm gonna know that they got it. I'm gonna wanna know what the skill is they're gonna learn the next day. And how, you know, what, what am I going to do to teach it? And how am I know that they've got it? So I really want us to start focusing on those essential skills in reading and math in particular to make sure that our kids have that super strong foundation and that we are better at literacy and math and continue to stay that way 
long over time and to move that trend line up over the next 10 years or so. So as far as academic recovery goes, if we can focus on the things that really matter and that are super essential and help our teachers understand there are essential skills out there, there are places that they can find them, we'll get resources together for them to have them, and they can start moving that needle forward with their kids. So we're gonna work on that for now with academic recovery. There are all kinds of things tied up into education. Do not get me wrong. This is just today's little mini focus because we don't have a lot of time. That is not what a Catholic education is all about, but academics are a piece of it. And we're known for being exceptionally good at that. But I'd like to be exceptionally great at it. And I know our kids can do it. So just some things that I want you to start thinking about as we continue to have these conversations and move forward. Well, thank you so much. <clears throat> so, um, and I and appreciate that comment, Julie. One of the things that we've talked about a lot is the idea of giving our, our school leaders permission to focus on the absolute essential. You know, we, we're in a in time and environment where there's a lot of demands on time. There's only so many minutes in the day. And, and if uh, we're to do nothing else, really clearing the deck as much as we can to focus on those essential skills, I think, is the most important thing we can do as a system right now. So thank you for the data. So now is the time for question and answer. So I'm going to come down into the uh, audience, and uh, we're happy to field any questions you might have. The 32.2% 30, growth, when was that? What years were those over? Oh, sorry. So about the growth slide. So our Catholic schools uh, grew uh, something like 4% in total, 3.8% last year, and another 0.3% this year. So we're up a little bit over 4% since the onset of the 20, so since August of 2020, we've grown that much. The big growth we saw was in those lower elementary grades. And so that 32% gain was the gain in enrollment in our youngest grades immediately post-pandemic. So saw the biggest loss and then the biggest growth. Overall in our, in our youngest grades were, we have more kids enrolled now than we had pre-pandemic. Here's another interesting statistic. About 40% of our schools have a wait list nationally in at least one grade. Most of those wait lists that we're seeing are going to be in the younger grades. So we could potentially have even more kids. It's just that in particular, we had more demand than desks in a lot of schools with those, with those youngest grades. So the other question I had, I was actually in a school, I taught in Pennsylvania for a few years and I was in a school that we ended up closing. So what are, what are we seeing as far, as far as like Catholic school closings? Is that, you know, how's... Yeah, that's a great question. We've seen some of the lowest levels of closures in years over the last two years. So immediately post-pandemic, um, so this would have been May and June of 2020, we did have a lot of closures that year, something around 200 schools closed. It seemed like a lot of dioceses or networks brought up the decision to close a school because of the pandemic. But since then it's dropped to record lows. So this past year, we closed something on the order of 40, 40 schools, but then opened up um, a number of others. And so, uh, you know, our net change was only around 30 schools and in total closed this past year. We're seeing a lot of school openings. Uh, they tend to be smaller schools. There's things like Chesterton Academies or, or smaller classical schools that are designed with smaller populations. So uh, we're also seeing a lot of growth in overall population in places like Florida. Uh, so the, the school closures are not happening everywhere. Um, in particular, people have been, families in general have been migrating out of the larger metropolitan areas, rather, of the Northeast and traditional Midwest. And so we've seen population declines over all of school age kids in a lot of cities in those areas, but then growth in places like the South and the Southeast and the Southwest. We have growing populations. So COVID really shook things up for us. People have moved to a lot of new places and we expect we'll see long-term changes for the US because of it. When you talk about the disaffiliation and more of the Chestertons and Regina Chaley's that are opening up, do you think that affects our schools, the larger schools, um, parents being involved? Because they're taking our most, usually in those schools, you have your most committed parents. And as they leave, they're not there for models within the larger Catholic schools. So do you see that as having an effect on that disaffiliation? 
that's an interesting, so anecdotally, we don't have a lot of hard data about how our population is redistributing itself. So you have, when you have schools like the Chesterton Academies or classical schools, so anecdotally, we know we have a lot of, you know, highly uh, devoted or devotional families that tend to constitute the populations of those schools. Um, but, uh, you know, because the overall numbers of people who are religiously affiliated has declined, it's really to see what the trend within the trend is with those schools. Uh, we, I, one thing that uh, people ask, well, what, and I'll, I'll, I'll let John respond to this as well. Um, people say, well, what can I do to support Catholic elementary education or parochial education? One a really important thing is going to church and like donating on Sunday and collection like we used to. So there's, a, the, the, yes, we've seen a, a growth of these smaller schools with highly committed parents. Um, the, and we've seen growth in our school population. We're concerned about our parishes themselves. Our parochial schools depend on their mother parishes for their sustainability. And so I, we want to encourage people to stay engaged in parish life as well. And John, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I didn't hear all of the question, but as I'm, as I'm listening, you know, a, a couple of responses. One is there's, there's certainly a distinction between religious education and catechesis, right? But I think having done both, the middle ground where, where those two ministries intersect is what we're about ultimately is to bring people closer to the person of Jesus Christ, to have a transformative encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ. Everybody in this room at some point had that moment, you know, where your life was transformed as well. Um, and I think with the, with the data that Lincoln presented with regard to the number of non-Catholics that have been piling into our schools, frankly, um, there is a great opportunity to evangelize those same families. Academic excellence, like Dr. Vogel presented, check. But let's never lose sight of our mission in all of that. Um, as a former superintendent, I saw too often when schools really begin to circle the drain and start to lose it is when their focus turns from mission to enrollment, to finance, all of that operational vitality. You know, I'm a big Nesbex fan. I'm all in favor. It's a, it's, a, it's a holistic picture, but I really think our point of reference of departure and our point of arrival, it's always mission and the person of Jesus Christ. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but um, it's, it, it's amazing how often we lose sight of that. But we have a, a, a tremendous opportunity to evangelize with the capture rate of those non-Catholics. Like Lincoln said, um, they're sticking around. We were all holding our breath after the pandemic, weren't we? We were at my diocese. We were the first to open. We saw a 14.2% increase in enrollment in, in our own diocese. And why is that? Um, well, initially it's because we were the first to open and we stayed open. But you know what? Surprise, surprise, those families stayed because of community, because of the values that we profess and we're educating for not just for our church, but for leadership in our world. Lincoln talked about discourse. Our world is in such need of discourse. We've been fractured and we're part of that solution. Thank you, John. So if I understand the slides correctly, reading and mathematics is going down in general, correct? We're not as bad as the public system, but we're still doing pretty poor. No, we're so actually, we're not doing poor. We're doing not as poor as the public right. system. We're not doing as we just mirror their results. So if you look at it, our results are maybe 15 or 20 points higher, which is really that's statistically significant in a positive way. But they don't look different than the line below. You know what I mean? They follow the same path. So it's the follow of the same path. We want to change the path. That was my question. So you mentioned focus. So mm -hmm. what do we focus on? I mean, what, what, is the, what is the cause of it? I guess it's not our teachers, our underpaid teachers, I think, but because the public system is doing worse. So what causes it? Why, is it? why are those results going down? And how do we reverse that trend? We reverse the trend, well, for, for lots of ways. From an academic perspective, you focus on the two, kind, the two things that you need to learn how to, to read. So you need to teach kids how to break the code, right? So they have to learn how to decode to, to figure out how to read the words in print. And then you have to teach them to make meaning from that. So there are the two, right? So it's learning to read and reading to learn. I know that sounds really silly and cliche, but all of the research in psychology and all the research in reading says, those are the two kind of big buckets. So we really need to focus on those. 
And there's tons of research out there where they've broken down how to teach reading. There is no way anyone in this room doesn't know how to teach reading. It's really hard to do. We've all forgotten because we're adults and we take it for granted. But when you're teaching kids to read, teaching kids to read is really hard, but there's research out there and there's materials out there that will help you do it right and do it well. Systematic and explicit phonics, dirty words in some places, vital to our kids' success. You gotta do it. That's the stage one of reading. And then stage two is how do we build comprehension skills and how do we teach them to be able to have discourse and dialogue? What are the skills that they need to do that? Here's the key to that. Kids need to read a lot. The average American kid reads less than 15 minutes per day. If your child and your kids in your classroom are not reading wide and reading more than 15 minutes a day, they're behind the curve. So what I've always loved about Catholic schools is that we have the opportunity to set things up the way we need to, to help our kids succeed. We don't have to follow all of the rules that public school teachers have to follow. We can choose to focus on the things that we know matter and make a difference. So you have to really be intentional about what you're doing and you have to choose wisely and you have to choose well in order to make that happen. But there are resources today that are readily available that can help you do that. I suggest due diligence when choosing resources for kids, but they're there. Um, and I know a lot of our folks do that. So I'm really passionate about the reading piece in particular because I think it's important, but I'm also super passionate about mathematics and mathematics is super linear. And there are, let's face it, what did I think? There are 15,000 hours of content that you could teach your kids based on standards. Teachers in the room, you all know what I'm talking about when we talk about standards, right? There's 15,000 hours of standards content. Guess how many hours we have? 9,000 total K-12. We have 9,000 hours to teach 15,000 hours of content. Not gonna happen. Can't happen. So for us, make it easy. Really pay attention to the essential things that matter. Standards can be broken down in many different ways. Um, there are many different parts and pieces to standards. There are skills that overlap. Look for how you break down those standards and how many of those skills are really essential to helping kids move forward. In particular, um, after COVID, we noticed a huge drop. So there are places where they've taken learning standards. There are companies that are out there. There are different groups that are out there. There are colleges and universities and experts in that area who have laid it out and can tell you exactly from point A to point Z, what skill you should teach in what order K through 12 in order to have really literate kids that have all the skills they need to do to read and to do math. They have it all laid out in a really clear sequence. And then they'll say, here's all of them, but guess what? Some are more important than others. Here's the 50 that kids must master. Make sure they master those because if they get those, chances are they're going to get the three or four others that relate to it as well. So they've laid it out for us. The research is there. It's readily available. Most of the time you can get it for free. So there are places that have that for kids. You just have to be super intentional. You have to pay attention to what's going on around you and what the research is saying. And then you have to act on it and do something about it. And um, we do that well. The other bonus that I will say about Catholic schools is there's this guy named Hirsch. You have any, any researchers in here? There's a guy named Hirsch who does a lot about coherent curriculum and cohesive curriculum. And he says Catholic schools still to this day do it better than anybody else. So pay attention to what you've laid out. Pay attention to the things that you want kids to know. Teach that and ignore the rest. Do it right, do it well, and do it deep. And we've got it. Easier said than done. When I stand here and say it, it's like, oh, that's not so hard. We do that every day. And then you get into your classroom and it's a little more challenging than that. But that's the whole premise behind it. So we do have, there are available resources, any good assessment company, any of them, and all of them have it, should have that all laid out for you. And you should be able to see it and have it in your back pocket to help in your classrooms. So Lincoln, may add something to that? Thank you, Julie. I, I would also say another area of focus to, to come full circle on that question is, 
you know, to think even more broadly in terms of context, if any of you were at the keynote this morning, our partners from Frenzy, if you stayed to the, the video of those children giving a testimony why they love their Catholic school, culture and climate of that community, if kids feel they have trusted adults who care for them, who love them, they feel safe within that environment, their learning is going to grow exponentially. So, you know, focus on that culture and climate yeah. of the Catholic school community. We mm -hmm. can't take that for granted. Um, that does not happen on its own. And I think that's, you know, mm -hmm. sort of the, the wraparound context. John's 100% correct there. Culture and climate matter the most. Um, and I do think that's the one key differentiator for us is we are all about community, right? We are all about the culture of our schools. And I think that makes a huge difference, huge. Thank you, Julie. You know, we, we talk, oh, and I'll, just the last comment on this, our uh, reading scores have been going down in absolute terms for everybody since 2010. Yep. And so the way that you get good at reading is you read, read a, lot. a lot. And what have we been doing since 2010? Phones. Yeah. yeah. So we, this is this is a much bigger challenge for us. Si silent, sustained reading is a really hard thing to create space for these days. Well, thank you so much for all of the data. The data is very um, interesting and insightful um, from a national level. It's fascinating to see that the, um, the Catholic schools outperform uh, the other states when considered um, as a whole. I was very curious to know if NCA has ever given consideration or thought to the international results and data because the one of the most beautiful things, if not, one, well, one of the most beautiful things about our Catholic schools is they're not just in our country, they're all over our world, right? And mm -hmm. so we have PISA data that shows us how countries perform. And so I was just curious to know if um, you might give consideration and perhaps disseminate uh, data of our Catholic schools by country throughout our world. Thank you. I, I can't tell you today how we stack up vis-a-vis -vis Finland, but we can look into that. So thank you for the question. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Good, good consideration um, too. Our schools to do about. participate in PISA and, and mm -hmm. some of the others, but they don't get that kind of breakout right. for um, for Catholic separate Catholic school breakouts. They don't provide those. We usually don't have enough participants to 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 get that data. But are you talking about comparing how our Catholic school kids do all over the world? to each other like so in Kenya how are they doing and wherever Finland or wherever wherever you want to compare but how are our Catholic schools kids doing internationally no no one no one collects that kind of data um that's that kind of an international survey you know would be millions of dollars um collecting that's it's big that's why it's important for us particularly when we participate in NAEP you know we we couldn't afford to have those kind of tests done across the country um, whereas you know the federal government spends millions and millions of dollars on doing that and um, so the Vatican does not do that um, there is the um, uh, the International Organization of Catholic Education, but that's you know dues funded by you know various countries, and there's nowhere near that kind of funding to really get accurate results collecting that, unfortunately. And and you know every every country has different standards at different grade levels and so on. So trying to get you know just just imagine you know all of the all of the hoopla around trying to do Common Core. Uh, and trying to get some kind of consensus on that in this country, and then trying to do it across, you know, internationally would be astronomical uh, in terms of funding, but that also politically would probably never get off the ground. So it would be important data to have, but um, probably not likely to be collected. It's a simple question. Are these, is this slide presentation available on the website? Yes, we'll be happy to share the slides. All right, well, we'll be here. Uh, thank you so much for all of your support and for attending. And we're always happy to answer any follow-up questions that you have. Uh, you can find all of our contact information on the NCEA website. And thank you for attending. Today's podcast is made possible by our ambassador partner, Archangel Education and Technology. Archangel supports Catholic schools by not only putting technology in the hands of our students, 
but also by supporting leaders and teachers with outstanding professional development. In-person and virtual options are available. Thank you, Archangel Education and Technology. To learn more about how Archangel can support your school's technology or professional development needs, please contact 866-747-4486. Again, that number is 866-747-4486. Thank you for listening to today's special edition podcast. To hear more conversations like this one, please join us at NCEA 2024 in Pittsburgh at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center. More information will be available on our website in the coming months, ncea.org.